Hey everyone, Ryan here. Just a quick reminder before we start the show that we have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash leftanchor. Uh, if you want to support the show and get access to extra episodes, um, you can sign up there. If not, that's also fine. But uh, thanks for listening in any case. Let's get started. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Pleased to welcome to the show um, Bill Humphrey, who is a city councilor in the city of Newton, Massachusetts. Um, one of one of the you know sort of rising class of young lefties who are you know sort of taking power in you know scattered locations around the country. Um, so uh, we we want to have him on to talk about you know the 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 sort of nitty gritty of, of political campaigning and, um, you know, the nuts and bolts of, of government at this, you know, this sort of trying time. So welcome to the show, Bill. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I know it's been a few years since, uh, we saw each other in person, but it's good to, uh, t- talk to you again. Yeah. It may be a few years before I see anyone in person again. So, <laughs> you know, no, no harm done there. Um, yeah, so to kick things off here, I wanted to ask, you know, could, could you lead us through kind of the last, you know, maybe sort of a couple of years and in, in your efforts to, you know, uh, get yourself into politics, what that was like, what the sort of campaign and, uh, you know, ultimately successful winning of, of office was like and kind of, you know, what you, uh, what you learned in that process, I suppose. Sure, yeah. So Newton is my home city in Massachusetts. It's a suburb next to Boston. And um, I had, you know, been politically involved, you know, in terms of uh, student activism, uh, but not necessarily super involved in city politics. Um, And then I had gotten really involved in Delaware politics because I went to college at the University of Delaware. Um, So involved in various Democratic campaigns and the struggle for marriage equality and so forth. Um, but, uh, and I, I thought for a while I might go into politics in Delaware, but, um, if anybody knows anything about Delaware politics, they would probably know why that didn't end up, uh, panning out. Um, uh, I, let's just say my, um, my ideology did not necessarily align with the prevailing ideology of, uh, the, uh, business community in, uh, Delaware. So anyway, I came home, I figured, well, you know, if I go back and, uh, get involved in, in Newton politics, um, no one can say that I'm not from there if they don't like what I'm saying. So, you know, that'll give me an advantage. So I, I tried running uh, for office in uh, 2016, um, you know, partly because uh, toward the end of 2015, it seemed like Bernie Sanders was kind of taking off more than expected. And, you know, it felt like there was maybe a moment there. Um, it was kind of a long shot bid for that. That was I was running for a more obscure office called Governor's Council, which has these enormous districts that are larger than congressional districts, and no one really knows what it does. So, um, you know, I but I got a lot of practice in terms of how to um, kind of run a campaign, and uh, you know, I had already done a lot of uh, door knocking stuff for lots of other people's campaigns, and I really enjoyed that part of it. So I kind of emphasized that. Um, for that race. But of course, that was like a huge district where you couldn't possibly get to everyone. And it was kind of hard to predict even what the turnout would be. Um, So I uh, did an okay second place out of three candidates in the primary. Um, But uh, then a a few years later, my, my uh, ward counselor uh, 
which is we have 24 city councilors, which is a lot for a suburb of our size. Um, 16 of them are elected citywide, but eight of them are elected from a specific ward, which is just four precincts. And so kind of like how um, Bernie Sanders, before he uh, ran for mayor of Burlington, had kind of run statewide in Vermont and then identified where his strongest areas in the state were, which was like precincts in Burlington. Uh, I knew that I had done super duper well in uh, in my first race in, in my home uh, precincts. So like I think one of the precincts, I got like 70% of the vote in the three-way race. So I kind of applied that nice. principle um, when he decided to retire. And, you know, he had a preferred candidate that he endorsed and everything that wasn't me. Um, there was a lot of people who were pretty skeptical um, that I was going to be able to pull this off. But I was like, well, this is such a small race. It's just four precincts that I really can go out there and talk to just about everybody. Um, and so I ended up doing uh, four complete passes on the doors through through my ward um, over the course of February through the November election. And there was a preliminary election as well because there was a third candidate who was running. Um, and I ended up winning the uh, preliminary vote in September by seven votes um, after doing three passes. <laughs> and then nice. And then at that point, because I had won the preliminary, uh, and I guess up until that point, everyone just kind of thought that the um, sort of preferred uh, candidate was, you know, of the, the outgoing guy was going to just run away with it in both the preliminary and the general election because I won that. Um, people started to think, oh, he might actually win this. And um, the other thing that happened, which, you know, <laughs> I, I never know how much credit to give it in terms of the outcome because it's sort of a, a unknowable counterfactual. But the third place candidate um, who got into the race pretty late um, and actually had a pretty impressive showing. I think she was only maybe 40 or so votes behind me and less behind the second candidate. So it was almost a even split three ways in the preliminary uh, she was not happy with the outcome, and she decided to stay in as a write-in candidate. Um, and she did okay as a write-in candidate, um, and and managed to get you know pull several hundred votes. Um, some of which might have gone to me if she hadn't been in the race, but certainly a lot of them probably would have either not voted or maybe voted for the other candidate. So who knows how that would have turned out? Um, but the uh, the the ultimate outcome there was was that I won the race by I think what thirty three votes in the general election. Uh, it was very close, um, and uh, it basically... How many votes total? Um, so let's see. I, I got 960-some-odd, and the second-place candidate got almost that many, and then the third-place candidate got uh, a few, a couple hundred or a few hundred. So I think altogether probably, what, 2,300, 2,400, somewhere around there? I don't have the numbers in front of me, but... Um, anyway, it was... What's the you know, turnout yeah. there? Um, it was. Um. It was. It was like... Better than usual, um, which I think is a function of having three candidates in the race. And that gets underestimated by a lot of people. I think the effect that having candidates and running candidates can affect turnout. Like it seems kind of elementary, but I feel like a lot of sort of the, um, you know, political consultant class type of people just like don't they, they always think of the electorate as being this totally fixed thing. And they don't really <laughs> register the fact yeah. that like, hey, you know, if you have like a specific candidate running some people who might not vote otherwise are going to come out and vote. And I think that was definitely true for, for all three of us. We brought out like our own specific bases. Cause of course in a race like that, it's so local that, you know, on some level you can say, Oh, everyone pretty much knows all the candidates, but on, 
some level that's not true. There's definitely people that like there'll be hundreds of people that I never met and have no common social circles with or whatever. Maybe they, you know, they're in a their kids are in a different generation than I was and or they're friends with the parents or whatever, you know, like there's all these networks there. There were like Facebook network groups of like school parents and stuff that I wasn't part of and had no sort of reach into. I was going almost entirely off of either people I already knew. Uh, a lot of times I had gone to school with their kids uh, or they were people that I met while door knocking. And there were lots of people who told me like, oh, I, you know, I, I met you or I met someone who was knocking on your behalf on one of the follow-up times, uh, or I heard from my neighbors that you're trying to meet everybody, and I think that's really cool. So, you know, that that kind yeah. of personal touch, um, I think, is, is – I mean, it, it definitely made all the difference. Like, if I had knocked even, like, one, you know, one shift less or something, I probably would have lost the race. Like, that was how close it was. It might have even, it might have even helped to you that the other candidates presumably were knocking doors as well. Because, I mean, I think people don't realize how many – uh, Americans are just too busy with life to even realize there's a local election going on. And, and uh, I know that, that there was a story with when AOC won, um, a lot of the mailers uh, that the villainous Joe Crowley sent out ended up giving her a lot of votes because people that just didn't vote uh, realized there was a race to be interested in. And when, when they looked into it, they preferred her. So it, it might just be that the general um, you know, competitiveness raised the awareness and that might have gone in your favor as well. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. Um, I mean, I remember in, tw- in my 2016 race, there was there was a th- that was a three way race as well. And the third place candidate was like this really rich, self-funding, eccentric lawyer type who had been like a Tea Party guy who then suddenly uh, converted to the Democratic Party when he realized that he could run for office as a Democrat. Um, but <laughs> but he like he ran like these like negative attack polls and stuff. I never in that race, I never did like anything negative at all. And I didn't really do anything negative in the council race either, but the city council race, but like the first race he ran the he would like do these phone polls that were super super negative against the incumbent because in that one there was an incumbent running and then like i would talk to people and they'd be like i didn't know there was a race happening but the incumbent sounds terrible but also i really didn't like this like other guy being real slimy so i guess i'll vote for you so i think there definitely is that kind of effect um i tried for for my city council race i tried to like integrate the doors with everything else that i was doing i mean that was definitely like almost the core of the strategy. Um, but I tried to keep like very, very careful, detailed notes, especially because of how small the race was on like every single household that I had any sort of interaction with. And I would take people off of the list for mail as soon as I figured out from like a lawn sign or something that they weren't going to vote for me. They were with somebody else or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tried to like focus as much as possible uh, with that and and just turn out my own people. But I was even taken by surprise when the results came in and how close it was because I thought that I had... Like I got almost to exactly how many votes I thought I was going to get within about 10 votes, um, which Hmm. showed that my sort of targeting and record keeping had worked. Um, But the second place candidate got like 200 more votes than I had estimated she was going to get. And that was all down to like her own personal networks getting pulled out. And who knows if those people would have even showed up if if, say, she hadn't been running in in the race. What what do you think accounts for your victory in terms of – was it like your platform? Do do you think uh, you differentiated yourselves yourself from the other candidates in, on a certain policy, or or what would you say makes the, made the difference for you? Yeah, well, so I think the way I approached it was I figured that 
that I had to differentiate myself. If the if the position if it looked like we all basically had the same position, I would I don't think I would have won even with the door knocking because uh like people well I mean let's just be honest about it like it's and there's nothing wrong with this like people would have voted for to elect a woman, right? Like that the other two candidates were women and if we all had the same platform like yeah, you should go and elect a woman if if everyone has the same platform. Like I'm never going to be like, "Oh, you shouldn't you should elect the guy that has the vaguely progressive platform over the woman that has the vaguely progressive platform or whatever." Um the other two candidates I think struggled to define themselves partly because um, one of them hadn't been expecting it to be a three-way race, and then one of them had kind of more sort of all over the map views on things. Um, and I just tried to be very honest about the fact that I was running from the left. I had a very strong point of view. All my lawn signs and everything said that I was running to be a community for everyone. That's not necessarily a message that goes over great with everybody in a, you know a suburb, even a liberal suburb. Um, uh, I focused a lot on like affordable housing issues and and that kind of thing and environmental issues that kind of those were probably the two biggest ones. Um, and a lot of people thought that I had also put a lot of detail and thought into my platform online, which I think helped. Um, but certainly the overall like kind of upshot of it was that my strategy was, which is not surprising what the end outcome was, was like, I am not going for a broad tent approach here. I'm not going to rack up, you know, some huge win because everyone agrees with me and I'm all things to all people. I'm going to win probably narrowly um, by having a really dedicated sort of fan base that's willing to turn out for me and and mobilize other people to turn out for me. And I think that's it. That can be hard to do at a local race when it's a little bit less obvious compared to something like, you know, running for Congress or whatever. Like you have to really sell people on the idea that like municipal government can be to the left and that that's a good thing. Yeah. So perhaps. <clears throat> Tell, uh, excuse me, tell us about Newton and about, and about the ward that you're in. Um, you know, I, I don't know much about, you know, Boston or much less of Boston suburbs, but I would presume it's like fairly well off and, and, you know, like probably mostly white. Is that correct? Yeah, that is, that is basically correct. And there's a book actually, I'm blanking on the title right now, but people who are familiar with it will recognize it immediately. But there's a um, sort of like that book, you know, What's the Matter with Kansas, there was a book about uh, the Route 128 uh, suburbs around Boston. And um, those were the areas that generally um, went pretty hard for Hillary Clinton compared to previous years, um, kind of in the way that like places like Orange County did. Um, you would have these sort of swings where it's like, yeah, they voted for the Democrat the past few elections generally, but like they really went out for Hillary Clinton. Um, and it's this very sort of Tony liberalism, um, it, you know, so everyone's socially liberal, basically, um, more or less. Obviously, there's exceptions, <laughs> as has been made clear in the past few weeks. But um, but like a lot of it gets a little bit more complicated when you get into the fiscal issues, which is why, you know, like someone like Elizabeth Warren is relatively popular because that's an acceptable whatever. But like in the primary that we had, uh, the presidential primary here this year, Joe Biden ended up winning despite nobody really admitting that Joe Biden like was their choice. I mean, there would be Mayor Pete signs, I guess, and maybe some of that transferred <laughs> over. But like, in ter- like it's it's a tough sell for someone like me to be like, 
yeah, you should be paying more in taxes. I, I can't do anything about it as a city councilor because we are one of the states that uh, like, you know, places like California and so forth has like those really restrictive property tax um, rules. Uh, I think Massachusetts was like pre Reagan revolution in like 1978 implemented like a cap on how much a city or town can can uh, raise their property taxes without an override referendum. Um, but, you know, there there would be that was sort of like the key divide. And I, I emphasized this in, in, you know, when I'd go like record a debate for the local access cable or I'd go record my video statement or whatever, I would say, look, we have we have an inequality problem even in our city. The mythology here is that everyone is wealthy, but I certainly knew that wasn't the case from when I was growing up. Like, we were okay, but we were definitely further down on the kind of income scale. It just happened that we had all... My family's been here for a long time. Like, I'm the fifth generation in my house. So, you know, that's the only reason that we're able to be here is because we were already here before it became super, super expensive. And, um, you know, but there would be people who were paying, you know just enormous amounts in property taxes on their multi-million dollar homes. And, you know, the houses around where I live are all valued at pretty much almost all over a million dollars and so forth. But that's not true for everyone in the in the city. And that's definitely not true in my ward. And I made that kind of a key strategy as well. Like right before the general election, I went around in uh, one of the neighborhoods. There's one precinct that represents this, like, sort of former. It used to be this working class neighborhood that supported various, like, industrial factories and stuff, which are, of course, all long gone. Um, but it's still like one of the sort of more lower income parts of the city, at least in relative terms. And I went around like with a, you know, like a little leaflet thing that was not sort of official literature, but it was, you know, from me, and I dropped it off at like people houses of people that I definitely thought were going to vote that was talking about like the haves and have nots. Um, and there were people, you know, there are people on food assistance and things like that and all kinds of other, like they need various other help. And there was a guy on the other side of the ward that was a very strange conversation. He just like said like, well, my net worth is $2 billion. And I was just like, <laughs> what? And I couldn't, and like, at first I was like, is he joking? Like, I don't, it was so strange. And he was just kind of like standing there just sort of like, yeah, like, I guess I don't tell people this much, but my worth is $2 billion. <laughs> and I kind of paused for a second because I was like, what am I supposed to say in response to this? And then I just said, so how are you planning to get rid of it? <laughs> oh, good. Excellent. What what was his response? Uh, he, he, he said something like, yeah, it's kind of hard to figure out like how to do that because... Like, there's a lot of things you could <laughs> spend it on or, like, how you could help people out or whatever. And I was just like, oh, okay. Did, did, did you respond, that must be very stressful <laughs> for you? <laughs> no, I was just, like, so weirded out by the entire conversation and just yeah. the fact... And, of like, yeah. course, like, when you are in a moment like that, because I don't normally interact with yeah. billionaires, like, I'm, I'm like... And, and I looked up after to figure out who it was, and I was like, yeah, that's definitely plausible that he could, like, the, I think he inherited it and so forth, but... Um, did you find him on the Epstein logs? Is that where you found him? <laughs> no, I, I did not check that. I, I, he seemed like more of a, a, I mean, at least from that conversation, like he... It's the quiet ones you have yeah, to Yeah, I don't know. For. It seemed like no. he didn't really uh, probably leave his his uh, his residence a whole lot. But um, anyway, no, I just like when I'm having that conversation, like my mind immediately starts racing thinking about the fact that A, 
he's not getting a progressive tax at the local level because that's not allowed in Massachusetts. Uh, and B, like this is exactly the type of like thing that highlights this inequality in the in the city and in the ward. Um, and we have all these uh, senior citizens, especially, are really cost burdened here. Um, a lot of them, there's no place for them to live. Uh, so they're kind of stuck in these huge houses that they've paid off. And you can say, well, lucky them. But uh, having a huge house that's paid off uh, is not necessarily an asset until you actually go to sell it. It's really more of a drain because you have to do all the maintenance on it and you have to pay these huge property taxes that keep going up as every time the value assessment changes. And like for a lot of those people, they really can't afford to leave. They There's nowhere that they can go move to and they don't have, you know, maybe a spouse has passed away. Maybe all their kids are on the other side of the country or whatever. So that was one thing I emphasized as well. Even though I was like, you know, I was 28 years old when I was running for this seat. I tried to emphasize because people thought like, oh, you know, he's not going to do well because young people don't vote at particularly high rates, especially in a suburb like this, where a lot of people, you know, unless they're like me and they came back home after college, um, which some of us did, like there's just not that much sort of participation from youth because there aren't a lot of young voters here. They can't afford to be here. But uh, I instead focused on like, okay, like how can I make myself useful to the people that are actually like here and and vote and so forth? And the like, if you regard the fact that a lot of the older residents here are the people that are really, uh, you know, in trouble financially and having a lot of difficulty with cost of living and stuff, that isn't totally compatible with the, the left message. Now it's just a question of, can I actually sell them on it? And if I go door to door and have these conversations, right. some of them will be like, Oh, well, you seem like a really nice young man, and I don't really need to know what your <laughs> positions are. Thank you for coming by, and blah, blah, blah. And they remember me coming by earlier in the year and that kind of thing. And But some of them are like, you know, I've been waiting for someone to, like, come by and talk mm. to me, you know, about the stuff that you're talking about. Like, there are definitely people so, here who, who <laughs> agree with this stuff. Bill, w- would you say that your job is primarily turning rich people into class traders? <laughs> Well, let's let's not get carried away. I've only been here for six months or whatever, but uh, you know, it's it's a process. Like I, I do think though, you're. I mean, joking joking aside, right? Like a lot of my job is to find a way to bring people as far as I can bring them, um, because oh, yeah. a lot I'm of serious. the time, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so this is like one of the huge challenges that somebody like me has, especially if I'm basically you know the only actual like quote unquote leftist as opposed to like left liberal or whatever progressive um, on the council. Like a lot of this is even whether it's voters or other counselors, you have to find a way to like get them to even think about stuff in a way that they haven't thought about it before. Um, And that comes up in a range of different issues, but obviously like, you know, there's been a lot of discussion like in the past, you know, month or so um, all over the country about like, you know, the, abolish the police, defund the police, blah, blah, blah. Like, what do these all mean? Because you could water them down to mean nothing, or you could have a specific meaning, etc. And uh, contrary to like the tendency on the, you know, on left Twitter or something like that, where it's like, it's not my job to educate you and you need to Google stuff like it is literally my job to educate people. Uh, <laughs> and, and if you're an activist who's writing in, like, because there were definitely, we had some, I mean, we had hundreds of people, a lot of them uh, younger folks, um, who, you know, they're back home because of the pandemic, which is an unusual political situation, basically, to have suddenly a ton of young people that are interested in, in local politics. Hundreds of them wrote in emails to us and so forth. 
And there were a few who did the like the social media thing of like, it's not my job to educate you. If a counselor said, I don't know what this is. And I, and I wrote to a few of them and I was like, no, it, it literally is. You have to tell them like I, I can try to reach out to them. But like <laughs> if you're going to tell them about a new concept they've never heard of, even if it's one that you're totally familiar with this, there aren't lobbyists like you are the lobbyist on this issue. You have to explain yeah. to them. You have to give them the reading materials. <laughs> and there were definitely no, like literally people who did that. leftists. At- Leftists and socialists generally, it is our job to educate people. That's literally like the tool that we have are the number of people that we can educate about their own interests and the interests of solidarity. It's literally, if you actually are a leftist or a socialist, that is your job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and this, this maybe bears on a sort of broader question, you know, like there's been a lot of discussion about the sort of like, you know, professional managerial class and and like uh you know like the the democrats are now sort of uh burdened with like like these sort of upper upper class sort of suburban types of folks who are you know they're they're disgusted by donald trump but they're not really that interested in um you know lefty politics per se mm-hmm. um and so in a in a state like Massachusetts that that like Obama won overwhelmingly twice uh Hillary Clinton won overwhelmingly um you know reliably blue state one of the most the, the bluest in the country yet there's a republican governor and the democrats in the state legislature are you know just like yeah they don't constant. do anything <laughs> yeah d- getting them to 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 live up to even their own sort of milk toast um you know express views is just like pulling teeth it seems like right you know from watching from outside and yet it seems like what what you're suggesting to me is like they're there's a there's a little bit more possibility there than people might suppose that that uh, there's been some fairly significant you know proletarianization or just sort of you know like relative impoverishment um, uh, happening to you know folks in these uh, sort of upper middle class suburbs and so on and that if if you were to sort of like go in and like try to politically you know, motivate people, do some activism, some education, outreach, and so on, you know, you, there there might be more people um, just sort of up and down the social ladder uh, who who would be kind of on board with this. And it seems like, you know, your your election in, in a limited sense is, is a kind of proof of concept um, that that you that it is possible, you know, like, like there is more it's not a completely cynical thing to just like, oh, we're just going to turn the Democrats into, uh, you know, a, like sort of Republicans circa 1980s. Um, and it will just be neoliberalism with the human face or something like that. Like there's more wiggle room than it seems like. Is it, Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah. Well, that's sort of <laughs> kind of my daily tension here is trying to figure out like where where are we at on that spectrum of persuadability? Because. Obviously, there's some people who are very much committed to saying the right things and never following through on it, right? That's one problem, (laughs) right? And you're not going to probably get, unless uh, barring some like really significant pressure that they're feeling, like if they genuinely feel threatened, maybe they'll actually do something. But like, there's definitely a lot of them where like they're never going to actually do anything even close to radical or, or just even left. Like then, and they might say the right things or they might say, oh, I'm sympathetic to it. They're never going to do it. 
and you really can't like spend a huge amount of time on them. But it would also be a mistake to write off the other people that uh, definitely. I mean, you know, like the, one of the things that I like about door knocking, and this is something you know, I I started the first door knocking I ever did was was like the general election two thousand eight in New Hampshire for Obama. I had a really great first experience, so I just kept doing it for all kinds of other people, and I've knocked, you know, a lot of doors in Delaware and Massachusetts, and the the overwhelming thing you find is that most people don't fit into the actual boxes that are neatly defined, right? They have eccentric and bizarre views. Like, there was, you know, <laughs> yeah. you like I, there was one woman that Swing was, voters. like, talking to me at great length about how important it was to like support the white Russian cause against the Bolsheviks. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't know what this has to do with anything, but like that, you know, out there in the real world, like people are idiosyncratic and eccentric and so forth. So there is some, some wiggle room there, but not necessarily either. Right. Like, again, it's, it's a lot of this is about sussing out, like, is this person a lost cause? Is this person totally receptive? Um, you know, trying to keep an open mind about that or trying to find like some point of agreement, like maybe, you know, we totally disagree on one particular issue, but we're aligned on the police issue or something like that, you know, and uh, it, it can be hard to figure that out. Like there are definitely local elected officials here who like very openly believe that like Elizabeth Warren is and they're Democrats. They believe that like Elizabeth Warren is like a radical communist who's going to destroy our country if she takes power or whatever. Like they'll say things <laughs> like, you know, she's too much of a bomb thrower. And that's why we lost the 2016 election is because people like her are driving the narrative about what the Democratic Party is and that kind of thing. And like that is why Biden finished first. He narrowly beat out Elizabeth Warren in our suburb and and uh, also narrowly beat out Bernie Sanders uh, statewide. Um, there's, but like the, and then there's the Elizabeth Warren people themselves, as I think we saw during the presidential primary, like it is very hard to differentiate between like, is this person like Elizabeth Warren is the furthest left they're willing to go, or they like her for aesthetic reasons, but not ideological reasons or whatever. Or is this like that they genuinely think like, you know, that the technocratic approach is the best way of achieving progressive policy. And, you know, they're sympathetic to the Bernie stuff. Maybe they voted for Bernie in 2016, et cetera. Like there was clearly a divide in that camp. Um, and, and even in a place like Newton, I, it's hard for me to gauge. Like I, you know, and <laughs> I guess some people th thought that like I won my election last year as like a fluke thing. So I guess we'll find out when I'm up for reelection at the end of the two year term, uh, how that goes. But like, yeah, it's it's a a lot of this is this process of figuring out like who can I actually get on board with this agenda that they maybe uh, wouldn't have been on board with, and a lot of that again goes back to that education point of like not everyone who disagrees with something the first time you talk to them about it is disagreeing because they have like a sincerely held opposition to it. Sometimes they've just never thought of it, like it's never crossed their mind to think of it that way. How well did Bernie do um, in the primary? Um, in, in yeah, your, let's you know, see. Uh, in my well, I think I actually have it on my computer here. Um, Great. Yeah. Let's see. So in Newton as a whole, it was he did okay. Uh, I think he got like fifteen percent thereabouts. Uh, finished. I want to say third. And so I like I I there were only two of us on the council who defended our endorsements of Bernie Sand. Like we we had endorsed him and and we defended right. it or whatever. I I defended it in terms of saying like. Um, you know, he 
like if he got 15% or, or I guess it was almost 17%, like 16.5% um, third place, I was like, if you compare that to 24 city councilors, there should be more than two of us who are supporting him in terms of being representative of the opinion in the whole city. And people seem to be like, oh, okay, like even if I didn't vote for him, like that makes <laughs> yeah. sense that we want to have yeah. a diversity of opinion and so forth. Um, in my ward, was though, Warren, in my War- ward, though, Warren was number two. Yeah, so it was mm-hmm. it was Biden. Uh, Warren and Sanders citywide, but in my ward, it was Biden, Warren, Bloomberg, and Sanders, which gives you an indication of that. And also, I will say, the one thing that also surprised me on election night, I won, but there are four precincts, and I lost three of them. The only precinct that I actually... (laughs) I I managed to run close in them, but like the one precinct that I managed to win by a significant enough margin to offset that was in that lower-income, former working-class neighborhood, Mm. um, which I think is, again, a proof of concept of my strategy. Like, I was able to placate enough of the people in, you know, the the wealthier areas and say... Like, one thing I always try to say is, like, I'm never going to lie to you about what my positions are. Like, I'm not hiding my positions or anything. Um, And that comes up on some of the more controversial stuff. Like, I'm not necessarily going to go around like shouting about it or whatever at this point, um, you know, certainly I'll take, I'll, I'll vote how I need to vote on it and I'll make the case how I need to make the case. But like, uh, you know, I'm never going to hide who I am, right? There, the, some of the, the people, the, a lot of politicians I think have this approach of like, you're doing it right. If everyone with polar opposite views all think that you represent them on the same issues and stuff like that, you like that they share your view. Like if you're like, you know, uh, like if, if the anti-development people and the pro-development people or what, you know, like something like that, if they're all in agreement on you, like then that means you're doing something right. And it's like, no, that means you're just being super vague and not like explaining. You're what, not challenging. Yeah, you're power. not explaining what yeah, your actual yeah. positions are. And I mean, yeah, it, there would be times like if it was a really weird, hostile doorstep conversation with someone that was obviously pretty close to a fascist or whatever, like maybe I was going to kind of just try to exit the conversation as quickly as possible and, you know, take them Mm -hmm. off the list and just be like, well, probably they're not going to vote for me. But if they do, I'm certainly not going out of my way to ask them to vote for me. That's up to them, I guess. Um, But but like there were definitely people who, you know, I just said like, hey, I think we disagree on this or whatever, and I'm willing to have a conversation about it. But like, here's my perspective on it. Um, But like, I think that there is also something which this is the like the key that that works in a local race where you can literally go talk to everyone door to door is you can really play up that like, oh, I'm just this nice local boy that's come to your door and is very friendly. So even if you don't agree with me on the issues, like, you know that I'm going to be there. I'm going to pick up the phone. I'm going to represent you. Um, And I've certainly like since getting elected, I have tried to make constituent service stuff like a real cornerstone of my strategy uh, for making sure that, you know, a that I'm literally doing what I'm there to do, which is to help people with their problems. Like there's, you know, that's one of the satisfying things with local government. If someone has a problem with a pothole or something like that, you can be like, well, the rest of the world is terrible, but I helped them with this problem, and that makes me feel you good. You know, Ryan has recently complained about street sweeping in Philadelphia, so I don't know if you've gotten any of those complaints, but that's the <laughs> yeah, kind of no, thing that, is, that Ryan would really That is the type really of thing appreciate. that, like, it drives people nuts or whatever. Yeah. And, and But, you know, here's, here's another example, right, which this is, like, not something that I was necessarily, like, going to go post about on Twitter or whatever, but, like, I think it's fine to talk about it here and, and kind of, I think, shows sort of the approach that I take. This is a safe space, <laughs> Bill. You can tell sure. us anything. Sure. So... I got a, actually a handwritten letter, not even an email, a handwritten letter 
uh, by uh, some constituents who were concerned that there was a guy who was living in his car on their street, and they were very frightened about this or whatever, and apparently, I guess their first instinct had been to call the police, and thank God the police didn't overreact to the situation. Like, they came by and basically said, well, he's not in violation of any of the parking laws, we know who this guy is, he's not a threat, and we're just going to leave him alone. And so it could have gone, like, way, way worse, obviously. But they were not happy about that as, as sort of the solution, and, like, also that sort of emphasizes that like even when the police are not doing a terrible thing they're still not really actually addressing the the challenge which is that someone is facing right. a housing crisis and needs some sort of uh help just leaving him alone is also not fixing the problem uh it's better than a lot of things but it's not fixing the problem so i went over there to their house like you know put on my mask and my gloves and everything or whatever and uh you know they invited me in and we talked about it for a while and i mostly just listened for a while as they kind of told me about the situation. But then I said like, look, the police aren't really equipped to handle this. We do have city social workers and I think that we need to talk to them and see if we can find some actual help for this guy. But just so you know, there are no homeless shelters in Newton. So this guy doesn't really have a place to go unless he goes into Boston or whatever. There's a pandemic happening, so he probably doesn't want to go to a shelter, and it's probably not safe for him, or might be, might not be safe for him, or he might not think he's safe to go to a shelter. He hasn't done anything threatening. He's not, like, actively bothering you other than the fact that he's here. Um, and I think it's important that we remember that this guy is having a much, much harder time than any of us are having right now. And they kind of looked at each other, and they were like, yeah... I guess that's true. I guess that's a good point. And so, you know, that kind of like de-escalating that I think is important. And that's something like you have to get them to think about that and like have that conversation. Um, and and I said, all right, I'm going to go like talk to the, you know, city staff, see if we can get a social worker out here. And I, th I think that they've done that now. Um, and then, you know, after I had that conversation with the city, I called them back and let them know what was happening so that they understood that there was something mm -hmm. Some somebody was coming to do something at some point soon so that they wouldn't like start harassing the guy themselves or like starting a petition drive in their neighborhood or anything like that. Right. And that's the kind of thing where like you have to even if someone like some they probably don't agree with me necessarily on some of my social views or whatever. Maybe they do. I have no idea. We didn't really get into that. But like we have to have that conversation with people and try to like get them to think about it from a different angle. Uh, yeah. And, you know, they seemed at least receptive and responsive to that. Some people wouldn't have been. Some people would have just been like, this is ridiculous. Did, did you mention Marie Antoinette at any point? Because <laughs> I think just, I, you know, no, but seriously, it, it, I'm curious about how these constituents respond to, say, the uprisings, right? The protests in the wake of, of um, you know, the, the state violence and the George Floyd murder. And if, as we were talking about people that were movable, it's a, it's, it's a tricky thing because I think, you know, maybe not this particular couple, but, uh, you know, rich constituents in, in, in Newton maybe uh, are more amenable to social issues than they are to kind of wealth inequality and so forth. But uh, racial injustice uh, might be one of those kind of hinge 
areas because it involves both, obviously, right? And so I wonder if kind of the, um, you know, the social uh, liberals that think highly of themselves on social issues, but still want to protect their money and their property are more movable when it comes to something like this. And maybe this is a good time to talk about what's been going on uh, regarding funding of, uh, you know, police positions and so forth, uh, because I'm very curious to hear about your efforts. Sure. Yeah. So, I guess, well, Newton and all of the 128 corridor suburbs like it are very much the embodiment of the famous uh, crushing Bort tweet of, you know, the the problems are very bad, but the causes, those are very good, right? Like, that's the difference between, you know, that's the being the fiscally conservative, socially liberal, and so forth. And there is a lot of that issue, I think, of, like, people thinking of themselves as liberals. But, like, up until this year it was very hard to get a lot of people on board with the notion that a lot of these functions shouldn't be handled by the police, right? And to the extent that you could get them to rethink it, their approach was like, well, we should hire more social workers into the police department, which is not like that's as opposed to like, we should have more social workers in the health and human services department and have those people go respond to a situation like that and so forth. Um, I think that people are starting to rethink it a little bit. It's very hard for me to gauge at this point how widespread that is, because obviously some people are writing in one way or the other, and the vast majority of people tend not to write in at all. Like they just, that's how these things work is that the people who care the most about it and are the most vocal about it are the ones that always write in on stuff. Um, I, I think you're right. That is, it's, it's this nexus point issue. Um, and, and you get a lot of the people who are, you know, they might even have a Black Lives Matter sign on their lawn and not think even twice about, like, going to the police over something like there's a speeding problem or a stop sign enforcement problem or whatever. Um, and I guess, like, from talking to, you know, because I'm only in my first term, from talking to the other counselors, the number one thing that people had traditionally said about the police was not, like, uh, you know, we need to get tough on crime type of thing because there isn't that much crime here and it's been going down, you know, year over year since the 1992 national peak and it's been going down certainly in the past several years as well. Um, but they would say, like, we need more police doing traffic enforcement type of stuff without ever once thinking, like, you know, I mean, obviously, I think if you're talking about someone who's African-American, they probably would be thinking about this. But if you're talking about uh, white liberals, a lot of them, and it's not like out, out of any malice, it's just like no one's ever pointed out to them that having more traffic stops and stuff like that and trying to enforce your traffic problems with police rather than, say, investing in road redesign to naturally discourage speeding and that kind of thing. Um, they don't think of it as like, oh, this is potentially increasing negative interactions between the police and people of color or um you know if we call the police on somebody that's having a mental health crisis that person could end up dead through an altercation or whatever um and to the extent that they did think about it it was always like you know oh we got to have more implicit bias training we have to have more um you know training on mental health crises or we've got to have you know a a police officer who's a specialist on senior issues in case there's uh, someone with dementia you know <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing yeah. um and yeah. It's a disease of liberals who don't understand systems or structures. They think everything is an individual issue. Yeah, to some extent. But again, I, I do think there has been a lot of like not communicating some of the ideas on this stuff to those people. Like we can have a discussion all day long amongst ourselves about it on Twitter or whatever, and it's never going to reach those people. 
Um, well, I guess maybe it does now. It seems like a lot of normies joined Twitter after Donald Trump got elected <laughs> and they realized that they had to like be on Twitter to know what the guy with the nuclear launch codes was up to. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, maybe that has, maybe that has had an impact. Maybe that's one reason why the situation is different now compared to in 2014 with Ferguson, but also who knows, maybe it's not different now. Um, that, that has been very hard for me to gauge as well. There was definitely a moment where it th- I felt like, Hey, maybe we can really push this to the breaking point. Uh, and people are seeing how ridiculous this is and we can get like some pretty significant change. And I think, you know, it's then the, after the other forces on the other side regroup, they kind of reconsider and figure out how to push back. Um, but I think you, you were asking about the, um, the local process here. So all of the budget stuff pretty much across the state got pushed into June instead of May by the COVID pandemic. So there was originally this budget that was about to be rolled out at the beginning of March that was going to like, you know, increase all the funding for all the different departments because we're riding high on such economic good times, which by the way, I like toward the end of my campaign was like, I think we're probably about to be in a recession. So you're going to want to elect me to stop cuts to vital services, um, which people were not necessarily happy to hear in principle, but they were happy that that was the position that I would have if I got elected. And I think they're uh, getting their their votes worth on that. Um, but everything got delayed. So George Floyd was killed during the f- sort of toward the end of the initial round of budget process where everything's just in committee. And then you're supposed to go into committee of the whole. And normally you would have all the 24 counselors meet like three different nights. They would pass some non-binding resolutions that had no effect. The mayor would say, thank you, but no thank you. Then they would vote out the budget and that would be done. And I was coming into this thinking like, well, like, I guess I'm going to probably just vote no on the police budget and hope I don't take too much heat for it. And I'll be the only one. Um, and then I'll vote for the the main budget. I ended up voting not only no on the police budget, not only no on the overall budget, uh, but also um, led the effort to uh, actually cut the police budget um, by a significant amount Um And that was unsuccessful, sort of. But also, on the other hand, uh, I will say that because of all the, you know, huge volume of emails that people were getting and the the public pressure that was mounting on both the counselors and the mayor, um, the the mayor kept on making sort of unilateral concessions without really calling them concessions. And and that way we would that way we never actually affirmatively voted through a cut ourselves. It was always something that was submitted as like a deferral or a cut by the mayor. Um, but that I think that should count on some level like that. That wouldn't have happened if we hadn't had this this huge pressure campaign and the fact that they thought they might actually lose some votes uh, if they didn't uh, make some changes. So some specific things that happened. Oh, and also important context for this. After George Floyd was killed, uh, like a week later, a uh, resident of Newton, who I guess he's a part-time resident here, he used to be the assistant athletic director at Northeastern University, and he's African-American, and now he's the athletic director at one of the colleges in New Orleans. He he said, right like a week before George Floyd was killed, that he had been out, like he had walked out of his house with his wife and four Newton police officers had surrounded him and pulled their firearms. And like, you know, he, they said, you need to like present ID and he didn't know what was going on. And he had them reach into his pocket so that there wouldn't be any confusion about it. 
and uh, you know they cleared him and let him go, but they didn't even really like bump it up to the chief. They didn't say like, oh, we like pulled our guns on this random guy, like that might come back to be an issue. Um, and then like the next day, there was a murder a suspect in a Boston murder that was arrested in the same neighborhood, and so they're justifying it. Even now, they're justifying it and saying like. Well, he matched a description, allegedly, and we had to, you know, do this and so forth. But that was an important piece of context was that for the first time, there was a local element that people could no longer say like, oh, this is the only, you know, this is something that happens in other places. This is something that happens in cities like Boston or in other states. They were starting to realize that this is something that could potentially happen here. Now, I mean, I my default assumption, which people don't like it when I say this, but my default assumption is always if you don't know about police misconduct issues in your own department, it's just because you haven't heard about it yet or found out about it yet, not because there isn't any. Um, and, uh, you know, it's because you're white. <laughs> well, that too. Um, I There's other stuff that I can't talk about for legal reasons that I'm aware of that also strengthened that position uh, internally, at least. But um, I, I, you know... I this this was definitely something that was a, a pressure point. So and then we started having these pretty significant protests even here, which like I think there had maybe been a relatively small like Black Lives Matter type march in 2014. I don't know how many people attended that, but like we had a um almost spontaneous, I think it was like organized like over the course of maybe 24 hours or so. I'm not entirely sure because I wasn't organizing it, but it was a a demonstration in front of the police department here. And I think about 2000 people showed up, which is crazy. I mean, we've got 87,000 people like this was enormous. And this was the main like the biggest probably arterial across the city, um, you know, four lane highway, basically, and through one of the business districts, and it was completely filled for like half a mile or something with people. Um, and, and this, I think, maybe shocked some of the local leaders into realizing that if they didn't make some sort of concessions, this was going to be uh, potentially escalating. So the upshot of uh, after all the everything was said and done, the uh, there was all of the new cruiser purchases, uh, which, by the way, if people are wondering how much those cost, that's $50,000 per SUV these days. Um, so uh, all of the replacement cruisers were deferred by, you know, at least some amount of time, potentially a year. Um, and that, like, uh, around the time that uh, that the budget deliberation process had started, I had noticed this like off budget item about these cruisers that they were like, oh, well, we were going to buy this one of these incident command vehicles, which are those are enormous, like just completely pointless things that are like for dealing with terrorism and mass shootings and stuff like that, which obviously over all of this hangs the legacy of the Boston Marathon, where despite the actual facts of the situation, uh, everyone is convinced that like the local police saved everyone. Um, And uh, you know, I, I was like, I started asking questions in committee. There were nobody else at the beginning of this process was even asking questions about any of this. And I just kept on saying, I don't understand this. Like what, like how you, you decided because of the pandemic, cause there's a huge fiscal crisis. They had to make a ton of cuts on a lot of stuff. You decided to cut some of the cruisers or defer some of them, but why not all of them? Like where was, like, how did you decide on the exact number? 
And uh, and so I just kept asking questions like that. And gradually, some of the other counselors started coming along. And we started getting all these emails and stuff. And I guess I had tweeted out some of the stuff where I was like, look, you know, they're going to cut over $400,000 from the parks and recreation budget. And they're going to eliminate Sunday hours at the library. Uh, you know, are we like... Are, are we on board with this? Like, is this what we want as as, as a city? Uh, you know, and meanwhile, they're going to increase the police budget. Um, and so I just kind of kept asking those questions. And pe- some people, I guess, found the tweets and like started like organizing around those specific demands. So we didn't end up getting any of the parks money back, which sucks, obviously, because everyone's out in the parks these days. Like, that's the only place you can be. Right. Um, so it would have been nice to like get that fully funded and so forth. Um, and that's a lot of like... There were people who were like, oh, Bill's trying to take away work and class jobs from the police. And I'm like, well, first of all, I disagree with that characterization. But second of all, uh, the parks department lost a whole bunch of positions or like, you know, seasonal like forestry type positions uh, because of the budget cuts there. And those are definitely working class jobs. Um, they, uh, we ended up getting the library hours restored for Sunday. That was a specific demand uh, from the protest movement that was met. Um, the... Uh, all of the cruisers ended up being deferred. Um, and so that was, I think, like 600000 something or something like that. I forget that. It was, it was several hundred thousand dollars anyway. It might have been $300,000. Um, but uh, <laughs> is it the, was... Is the police budget um, the biggest single item in the budget? Uh, no. And and that was one of the things that like the people who were trying to safeguard the police budget kept saying was like, we're not like one of these big cities that you're hearing about on the news. Like, this is not an enormous piece of the budget. It's just twenty three million dollars, <laughs> you know, and the the, the education yeah, I, department yeah. budget is so much larger. And, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, nothing we could do with twenty three million. Nope. Nope. Yep. Just to- well, so that was the crazy part, too. Like, so one of the, the challenges that I have in in the position that I'm at is like, you know, because we always make fun of the way that the congressional Democrats negotiate, where they just like yeah. negotiate themselves into a compromise position before they start anything and then negotiate down from that. <laughs> um, but like, it's a challenge. Like, I was saying, even independent of what the protest people were asking for, like, they and I both independently arrived at the conclusion that, you know, if we had kept pace with inflation or whatever, we'd probably be $2 million less at least um, for that department budget. And so I was like, we should cut two million. But look, I know I wasn't going to get people to cut two million, like uh, you know, at the drop of a hat. And also, a lot of them were like, if we had had this budget done in May, like it normally would have been done, this would have been done before George Floyd was killed, <laughs> and nothing would have been changed. So we shouldn't change anything. And I'm like, that's terrible if we, logic. If we but- remained ignorant about the abuse and terrible function of the police, then we would have endorsed it more fully. Do, do, yeah. do, do the other counselors? Do you think? Do they know what the police do? Do you think? Uh, well, we certainly got a lot of them uh, sharing their stories about how great the Newton police have been to them and their great interactions that they've had with them, which <laughs> like, it's like, I think we're missing the point here and so, taking so up valuable time. Is this like the equivalent of paying people to cuddle with you? Is that like they were happy that they like had friendly, like, hi, how's it going, neighbor interactions <laughs> with the police or or did the police do something useful for them? Um, you know, it was a mix mostly. I think it was more of just being personable or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But some of them would say like, oh, I had a specific, you know, emergency and the police like responded great or whatever, which has not been my experience. But anyway, um, so that, 
you know, we I, I, I was like trying to figure out, well, what, what is an actual reasonable number that I can say? Because if I say two million, everyone's going to roll their eyes and we're not going to get anywhere. But if I go too low, it's going to get negotiated down. So we did put forward a, a motion uh, to cut because that's one of the few powers we have as city council. You can't add money to the budget under our charter and under state laws and things like that, probably. But you can cut money. And then that frees up more money, potentially, I guess, that you could, the mayor could then say, OK, I'll move it to like the Parks Department or something like that. Um, that didn't end up happening. Uh, but but, um, you know, I, I moved to cut um, there were. Well, so there were five open positions for officers like these would have been new hires. Uh, they were already going to hire like that was already baked in in other places to hire three officers coming out of the academy. But there were these five vacant positions from retirements or whatever, and they were going to fill those. And I said, well, now, you know, the mayor has finally said, uh, you know, in responding to the pressure that she's going to convene this task force to reexamine the entire, you know, police budget and the staffing levels and all these things. Like, do we need as many patrols as we have? Do we need as many frontline officers as we have? That kind of thing. And I'm saying, well, if that's true and we're serious about that and it's not just a gesture, then we should hold open the five positions. Um, that was ultimately unsuccessful. There was a closer vote uh, where we almost had enough votes um, to do maybe half that, which still would have been like $200,000 or something. And you had counselors being like, well, you know, if we go from 22 point, however much to 22 point, a slightly lower number, which is still above 22 million, it's still... All of those possibilities are between twenty-two and twenty-three million dollars. That uh, you know, the nine-one-one calls are going to go unanswered. Uh, we had the mayor saying, like, or her administration at least saying, like, what if there's another another nine-eleven? What if there's another Boston Marathon bombing? And if you take away these frontline officers, we're going to have to uh, take move detectives off of solving rape cases and domestic violence cases. And they would say that stuff in the actual <laughs> meetings, um, and it was just it was completely nuts. Um, and, and just honestly, I found it really insulting and disrespectful, but you know, I just kept on saying like, look, this is, if we're serious about this task force, if it's actually going to do something, if we're going to have that discussion about like, should we have more social workers in the health and human services department? You know, should we move various other people to, you know, maybe you move the elder affairs officer to senior services, like have those kind of discussions, uh, why are we filling these new positions? Anyway, ultimately not successful on that. And and between the first vote and the second vote, we unfortunately lost some votes because I think there was a pretty significant behind the scenes pressure campaign right. even after that. Um, the other big thing that happened, which I completely consider a victory, um, I have tried not to gloat about it too much, but uh, the police chief retired early with three years left on his contract. Um, he was very adamantly against the Black Lives Matter protests. He was very adamantly against protections for undocumented immigrants, you know, to prevent police from turning them over to ICE. Um, and I just, you know, the other thing was he would get mad in committee meetings and stuff if I or any of the other counselors asked him uh, critical questions, even <laughs> very politely asked him questions. And he went to the Boston Globe and said that he had... Uh, he had been thinking about retiring for a while, but the skepticism with which he was met by a number of city councilors had pushed him over the edge. Uh, the other thing that kind of happened in all of this was that, you, uh, well, you, I'm sure you guys are all familiar. The, um, 
uh, alleged busloads of Antifa super soldiers that were crossing the country in caravans to if only, loot and vandalize if everything and proclaim anarchist republics. But anyway, uh, they at one point the the Boston Globe ran this story, which unfortunately, I mean, like terrified a lot of senior citizens and stuff because they assumed that if it's in the Boston Globe, that it must have been true, and that these two or three reporters who worked on this article must have actually, you know, verified that it was true, seen some evidence, and so forth. I ultimately confirmed that was not the case, uh, but they said that the the Chestnut Hill Mall, which was, everything was shut down at the Chestnut Hill Mall except for the Cheesecake Factory. Ooh, um, thank God. The, the, the Chestnut Hill Mall was, uh, had, had there had been this one officer of like a state police officer or something had called in and said that he needed help because there were all these uh, out of state vehicles there and that they were they were roaming around <laughs> like circling around the mall or whatever. So like a whole bunch of cruisers apparently from the Newton police went to go provide backup to the state police and they like they allegedly witnessed these. They were there were 50 vehicles all with out of state plates. Bill, you're not securing the border with, properly were, in Massachusetts. Yeah, they were they were uh, filled with black men uh, and that they were, you know, spray painting anti-police slogans on the oh Cheesecake Factory like F12 yep. Uh, yep. and so forth. And that, and that they, you know, they a police officer approached some of them uh, on foot to try to ask them what was going on. And then they took off and they drove around the mall like a couple times. And then they drove off down the highway to go to somewhere else. You see, Bill, um, you need to build the wall, but between uh, Connecticut and also New Hampshire. No, 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 not Connecticut. I know where they thought they were coming from if this was even a real thing that happened, what, which Boston? it didn't. But anyway, um, sorry, I shouldn't say it didn't. It may not have. Uh-huh. Uh, no, they thought that they came from Portland, Maine, because <laughs> they brought to the one of the protests that happened, they brought actual like riot shields and like uh, those like orange guns with like pellet gun, shotgun things or whatever, um, which was complete like bonkers overkill. And I think that also probably turned a lot of public opinion that would have normally been with them. Um, and their explanation for that, at least what I've been told, and I've filed public records requests that they haven't complied with yet. And they probably just won't, um, was like that. There were, uh, Antifa was going to come down from Portland, Maine, which as someone said, if, if, if it's true that these were all like, black anarchists from Maine or whatever, that would mean like the entire population of black <laughs> leftists no, or they, even they're from close Portland, to Maine, it. Come they're down like, from you know, Portland, like hipster also, college my, students my, probably. My assumption as well is that they actually read some news report about Portland, Oregon and didn't remember there was a different <laughs> Portland. Anyway, so that's me being mean and catty about it. But uh, this, this whole thing about the 50, I mean, I was like, if there actually were 50 vehicles full of people, which, first of all, is saying 50 vehicle out-of-state vehicles full of black people is very obviously just, like, a fantastical racist trope, yep. just to be clear about that. But, like, if that if, if, if there were 50 vehicles filled with, of any race, vandals, looters, anarchists, whatever you want to call it, uh, that were, like, besieging the Cheesecake Factory, <laughs> you would probably call out the National Guard. You wouldn't just have, like, five cruisers sit around, we like, must looking defend at the hand. Cheesecake. They never... Yeah. They never provided any actual like evidence to the Boston Globe. I, I asked, I, first of all, the reporter didn't get back to me. So I had to like go to the manager, so to speak, and email a managing editor. I was like, what was this based on? Yes. Just because everyone's getting scared. Like there are old people like writing in about how they're terrified of this. And like, I don't want them to be scared if it didn't happen. I love how uh, white and- racist paranoia is focused on the Cheesecake Factory. It's amazing. 
I know it couldn't like that's the thing. If you were writing it as a bit for left Twitter, people would be like, "That's played out." Like <laughs> you pick something else besides the Cheesecake Factory, and it literally was the Cheesecake this, Factory. This was um, uh, they they were gonna try to segregate that town in Georgia, right, so that they could get a Cheesecake Factory. That's they right. I call forgot it, about uh, that. Yeah, they Eagles did that. The Landing. secession. Yeah, Eagles Landing. Yeah, I forgot about that. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so I, I was like, what is this article based on? They're like, oh, it's based on two police reports. <laughs> I was like, so they didn't like show you any like photos or footage or like any sort of evidence that this actually happened anyway. And then, um, I mean, this is the scary part though, is like, once you start being like me and like being kind of a, you know, an ass about this kind of thing, I guess, I mean, I wouldn't view it that way, but I can see how they would view it that way. Like I'm being, I'm giving them a hard time and being difficult, then they started doing stuff like one of the council colleagues that had been working with me on the defund efforts and stuff. She she got like an anonymous call from a block number, you know, someone that like very clearly was probably a police officer but wouldn't identify themselves saying like, are you going to back up Councillor Humphrey on his assertion that this didn't happen, which I mean... I don't think it happened. I'm willing to be proven wrong on that, I guess. I'm I'm leaving the door open on the possibility that I'm just completely wrong on this. But yeah. So anyway, that's kind of where we're at on that. But I do think, you know, that probably contributed to the to the police chief uh, retiring that. And as I said, that he just did not like getting asked questions. What a snowflake, huh? about basic uh, you know, things the, like the most violent racist assholes are the biggest snowflakes, it seems to me. You know, he, he had um, he had a, a critical question in a council meeting and he had to retire. Amazing. B- back before the um, pandemic hit, we had a meeting with him uh, and, and one of his uh, superior officers as well. And um, it was about like, I guess, so they when there's like construction happening, you which this is like, I don't want to get into a whole can of worms about this. But when people talk about like, oh, if we, you know, defund and abolish the police, then everything will be privatized. And it's like, well, you understand that police already hire themselves out for money to like contractors and developers and stuff when they're doing projects. Like if they're building something and they need part of the street blocked they will pay money to the municipal police department to provide traffic direction for that. <laughs> anyway, there aren't enough officers because of how much construction had been happening when, you know, there was this boom time happening. So there weren't enough officers. So they needed more officers. So their solution to this was to get a special like l- like loophole law passed where they could bring back retired officers who were like uh, 80 years old or whatever, uh, potentially uh, like up to you know, or probably not 80. I think it was like 70, right? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to get carried away on exaggerating, but let's, let's say that they, it was above their mandatory retirement and so forth. You could get like, let's say they were 70. Um, cause I don't want to like exaggerate too much for comedic purposes here. But anyway, I was like, okay, so are these guys going to be armed? And they were like, yes, because they're former officers. Like they'll be armed. Like normally all of our traffic detail people are armed. And I was like, okay, but the crossing guards, work in the police department and they're not armed. So why are the traffic detail people armed? And he just got like so upset and he was like, <laughs> well, I think the burden of proof is on you to prove why they shouldn't be armed. What? <laughs> I was just like, no, I don't think so. Um, but, you know, so that kind of thing, uh, I think probably uh, contributed to his decision, as, as he put it in the Boston Globe, skepticism on the part of certain city councilors. Bill, do you think that, um, like, your fellow councilors are cynical and simply driven by kind of who supports them and funds them? Or do you think they're, they're ignorant and in need of education about 
the fact that police are violence workers and the harms that they do, it, you know, there's hegemonic ideology at play and there's material interests. So I'm just curious in your encounters in politics locally, um, how much education can solve and how much it's just there's a power struggle because of who's funding who. Yeah, I mean, setting aside the guy who is like closely associated with the police department himself, I think his father was a police officer and that kind of thing. Um, I think most of them, it's a it's a hegemonic ideology issue more than anything else, right? The common refrain is like, well, that's something that happens somewhere else. It doesn't happen here, that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's a difficult conversation to have. Uh, it, it was interesting, though, like definitely a lot of them, I think, opened their eyes. Like, I mean, there were people who were totally immovable on it, but there were people who like, you know, a, a month earlier wouldn't have been singing the same tune and they kind of rethought things based on what was happening and based on what we'd heard. Um, and that's, that, that's like a promising sign, I guess, right? Yeah, like that they're sure. starting to rethink it. I, I think that's an encouraging thing that there is some room for movement there. Um, it's always kind of hard to figure out how far that's going to go. Um, but you know, getting them to like open their eyes is certainly an important step. Um, and it's definitely verifiable the difference now in what people are willing to say openly between compared to like 2018 when I was first when I was like at the beginning of my city council campaign when the when the incumbent said he was going to retire and I said hey I'm going to run for this and there wasn't like I knew I wasn't going to be doing a whole lot of campaigning other than like going to some community events and that kind of thing I wasn't going to be doing a whole lot of campaigning until the door to door phase in like the um you know, February or whatever of 2019. But uh, in the summer of 2018, there was a huge controversy, quote unquote, because uh, I've I'm a very vocal opponent of high speed pursuits by police. Um, and there's been a lot of research specifically in Massachusetts about how many people have like innocent people, bystanders usually have died um, because of that, especially state police. Um, and it also happened that by coincidence, one of my dad's friends had been killed by an off-duty police officer who lost control of his vehicle, mm. um, just like happened to be driving by his house. My dad's friend was standing outside, oh. the vehicle lost control, and he was horribly killed. And that had happened like a few months earlier. So I said something on Twitter when there was this like high-profile crash that happened, and I wasn't even thinking of it in terms of my campaign. Like I was just, I was just tweeting like, because I had a strong opinion about this. And I said that the police had killed the person who died. Right. And technically, the person they were chasing is the one who collided with the person who died. But of course, he was being pursued for like, I think a minor parole violation or something like, or not even that. I think it was like a speeding thing or something. And they, you know, it was like going over in a 20 or that kind of a relatively low level violation. Yeah. And he was out on parole for some more serious crime. So then people were upset that they thought I was somehow taking his side. And it's like, yeah, but if someone's going like five miles over the speed limit, and then you end up pursuing them at 80 miles an hour, and they kill someone, I think that is like, I think the police department is culpable for that. Absolutely. Um, and but I said it as that the police killed him. And this got picked up by like right wing blogs and right wing talk radio and stuff. And none of these people were like here, like they weren't in Newton. They yeah. were just other places and they were so mad about it. And like and Bill's like a, a longtime vocal supporter of the terrorist group, Black Lives Matter and stuff like that. And 
almost nobody was willing to defend me publicly. Like that was another reason that for a long time people thought I wasn't going to win the race. Mm. Um, and even I got like a little bit, you know, skittery about it too. Like I, you know, for a long time, I kind of just stopped saying stuff about the police, like up until the most recent thing, even though this had been something that I was like pretty well known for, um, you know, before I ran, uh, was that I was a prominent, like I was very supportive of Black Lives Matter and had generally, um, I guess we'll keep using that word skepticism about the police, uh, to put it euphemistically. And like, almost no one was willing to defend me on that. And I was like, this is crazy. Like a lot of you said you were Black Lives Matter supporters back in 2014. Like, where is, why is there no solidarity? Like, why is no one having my back on that? I hope you call them out. Use liberal guilt and turn that liberal guilt up as high (laughs) as possible. I say, because you're being courageous and speaking truth to power and, uh, Call out those cowards who won't back you up. That's what I say. Well, you know, I, I, I'm trying to like as much as possible not be like not hold it against them in that way. Like I, a lot of those people that were like not willing to ha- have my back last time ended up voting for some of the um, at least one, if not both of the cuts uh, that I was proposing okay. or that other people were proposing to the police budget. And and, and you have to try to sure. like just move past it on some of that stuff yeah. um, and and try to be like, well, I'm glad that you finally got on board, but not say it in a passive aggressive way. Um, but I but that's why I say there's I think there's some sea change and and some sort of breakthrough in the hegemonic ideology. But like, who knows? Maybe they're not going to maybe that opinion is going to go away in a few weeks when things calm down, if they calm down, like maybe people are just going to move on. I don't know. I I hope that people keep focusing on this, but like, that was the other thing I kept trying to say to some of the counselors. Some of them were like generally on board with my agenda, but like they had, you know, one of the counselors, for example, was like, all right, well, the chief has three years left on his contract. So I've mapped out this like three year strategy to like gradually ratchet up the pressure and like bring attention to certain things. And I was just like, we don't like, this is the moment when we have tons and tons, we have 500 people emailing us in favor of cutting the police budget in this suburb. Like we're not going to get that kind of pressure a year from now on the next budget or the next budget or the next budget after that. Um, I mean, maybe we will, because who knows, you can't predict anything anymore these days. But like, (laughs) statistically speaking, the odds are more likely that now is the time. And, you know, that was not necessarily persuasive to everyone. Some people were like, well, I want to, I want the task force to do its work. And then we'll, you know, in a careful fashion, like start moving functions to other departments. And it's like, I believe that they're sincere about wanting to do that. Sure. I just don't know if they understand sort of the political timing implications. Have you considered emailing them all Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, letter from a Birmingham jail and highlighting the white moderate part and say, don't be this guy. Just don't be. Because that's the problem, right? Yeah, but I mean, you know, you know, people that like they'll like read a Martin Luther King Jr. speech and just be like, "I'm one of the good ones." They like <laughs> it's like I don't think you're actually reading what he said, but okay. Yeah. Well, um, been uh, been well over an hour here, so we should probably let you go, Bill. Um, but uh, yeah, we we certainly wish you the best of luck in your in your future battles with the. Uh, you know, the, the budget process and so on. And, um, yeah, maybe we could have you on in, a in a few months or so and, 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 uh, check back in on how that's Let going. Us know. Yeah. And, and Bill is, yeah, it, absolutely. is there anything we can do that our listeners can do to support you and support the causes you're fighting for? 
um, you know, wh- whether, whether it's, um, you know, for the things you're pushing or, or sending emails, you know, as concerned citizens, uh, is there anything that, that you would like that, uh, that people could do? Sure. Well, I always emphasize to people, you should only email the people that actually represent you. Right. We started getting issues toward the end of the email campaign where people would be like, I live in a completely different city or town and I'm concerned about the Newton police budget. It's like that goes in the trash. Right. Even if I agree with you, it goes in the trash and it undermines us with the counselors who are more like, you know, more open to persuasion and are less like like for me, if you're emailing me like I'm already on board. So I like having the email because it helps me make my case. But if there's another counselor who's like, I don't know, and I'm seeing these emails aren't even from Newton. Even if there's like one or two of those, that immediately undercuts the rest of them. So I always emphasize to people, you should only email the people that actually represent you. Um, But those emails, especially at the local level, can make a huge amount of difference because uh, generally you would be surprised at how little... Uh, the public communicates on stuff that they might otherwise care about. Like no sure. one would have probably written in about the library issues unless people had managed to like raise awareness about it in the context of the fact that we had this crisis around policing and this fiscal crisis related to the pandemic. Um, the second thing I encourage people to look into potentially running for office locally where you are. Um, I am definitely known as a vocal advocate for electoralism from the ground level up, as opposed to, like various other things. We didn't really talk about the like stuff that I did in terms of um, around rental assistance relief uh, efforts um, related to the pandemic. That was an interesting challenge because we had suddenly people who had never been on a government assistance program in their lives who were suddenly affected and needed uh, help of various kinds. Um, and that is the kind of thing where uh, if you just write off electoralism completely, I can understand maybe having skepticism at the presidential level or something like that, but at the local level, it is both easier to get elected and you can potentially get through to some of these other people who've never thought about this stuff before. Um, People tend to forget as well that their higher level elected officials often start out as lower level elected officials. That's something that I knew from working in Delaware politics where everything was so small to begin with. Someone could be a future U.S. senator uh, or definitely a congressperson. who is currently just a random guy or random woman on your local uh, county or city council. Um, So definitely look into running for that. You might have more influence than you think. Um, My, uh, my own website, uh, billhumphrey.org. That's my political committee website. If people want to check that out. Um, And then the last thing I will plug is that I also uh, have been doing uh, since on and off since 2011, um, a radio show, which I still send down uh, every week to Delaware. Um, It's a political talk radio show from the left. And we've certainly been moving left, as I think many people have been in the circles that we travel in uh, over the past, uh, you know, five or so years. Um, And that is at arsenalfordemocracy.com or the usual places you can find uh, podcasts. It's called Arsenal for Democracy. And um, lately, we have been uh, focusing less on some of the current event stuff and more on going back to talk about various historical processes that uh, affected the left in the United States or affected like capitalism's development in the United States. Um, So we've been doing a lot of stuff recently on like the rise of Standard Oil and kind of how they pioneered a lot of the second industrial revolution uh, consolidations and so forth. Um, We also last summer did a uh, really long series on uh, 
anarcho-syndicalism in the United States, um, which up until the Russian Revolution, that was the like dominant left tendency basically in the United States um, rather than communism, um, partly because that was an explicitly non-electoral strategy um, because you had tons and tons of immigrant workers who had moved there during the Second Industrial Revolution uh, during the Gilded Age, and they had no voting rights. And um, and this was a way of giving uh, of conceiving of an alternate mode of exercising and wielding uh, power uh, uh, other than uh, by, you know, going to the ballot box um, and also other than by uh, just dynamiting random things, which was a different tendency of anarchists, <laughs> certainly that we also talked about. Awesome. Well, you know, city councilor Bill Humphrey, perhaps future governor, future senator, future president Bill Humphrey. <laughs> Thank you so well, much. No, no, definitely not future president. Nope. No more presidents. No more. We've got to abolish the presidency. <laughs> future, future anarcho-syndicalist autonomous zone, uh, you know, co co-founder. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Really rooting for you. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>